Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi, and I'm the assistant director of the project on global economic liberty. Following, following the, the fall of the Berlin Wall in uh, 1989, countries of Central Europe embraced uh, freedom, both political and economic, and embarked on uh, joining uh, the community of developed nations. Similarly, after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the Baltic states embraced free markets and democracy. More recently, uh, the people of Ukraine and uh, the people of Georgia overthrew their autocratic regimes and uh, um, they have, uh, they have embraced uh, freedom as well. Under the leadership of uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, however, uh, the Russian state stepped back from uh, free market economics and democracy. And uh, these days, uh, we see the Russian Federation embracing uh, uh, autocrats and totalitarian regimes in the near abroad. The Russian state has threatened, blackmailed, and generally undermined uh, the democratic uh, governments of Georgia and Ukraine at every turn. And clearly, what Russia seems to prefer these days is to deal with uh, the likes of Alexander Lukashenko, the strongman of Belarus. Belarus attained independence in 1991. But since uh, Alexander Lukashenko came to power in 1994, he has cracked down on his opponents and rigged successive elections. Today, Belarus lacks basic political and economic freedoms, including freedom of press, freedom of association, and freedom of expression. More recently, President Lukashenko has won another term in office with a truly Soviet 83% in favor. As a result, Lukashenko's uh, relations with uh, the Western community are strained. He's been called Europe's last dictator, and President Bush has called Belarus uh, one of the outposts of tyranny. And the Belarusian economy continues to be run according to discredited socialist principles and remains heavily dependent on cheap gas from Russia. I'm very happy that we have here today uh, two authorities on both Belarus and Russia, and they will enable us to, um, to better understand the life of uh, the everyday life under uh, Lukashenko in Belarus and also the relationship between Belarus and Russia. Our first speaker is uh, Yaroslav Romanchuk. I had uh, a privilege of meeting Yaroslav in 2004 when uh, Cato held a conference in Moscow on the uh, future of liberalism and uh, Yaroslav was one of the speakers. Yaroslav was born in uh, Belarus in 1966. He's the vice president of scientific research at the Mises Institute and also the vice chairman of the United Civil Party. He has authored uh, this book, Belarus, the Road to the Future, um, which is really a suggestion of liberal market reforms for the Parliament of Belarus and was based on uh, Cato's Congressional Handbook. Um, Yaroslav 
um, has been educated at the uh, Linguistics University in Belarus um, and, um, um, uh, and has been a prominent uh, critic of um, uh, the increasingly autocratic President Lukashenko, and I'm very happy that you are here to join us today. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having me here, and first of all, uh, for uh, interest to Belarus as the last totalitarian state in Europe, where every time I talk about, uh, use the adjective last here in the context of my Russian friends, they say, wait a minute, <laughs> there is something coming. So that's why it's uh, really, um, uh, it's, it's a very good example, and uh, we agreed with Andrei Larionov that uh, Russia is lagging behind Belarus for four years. So if you guys want to know what this part of the world may look like, Welcome to Belarus. Besides, that's a very good uh, grant for research of those who really are still dreaming about government intervention into the economy, because unlike in Western Europe, this is a pure case of the government intervention that led to extremes. From that perspective, that's quite uh, interesting uh, and uh, uh, that's not so for many people who live in Belarus. That's why my topic of the presentation is that the totalitarian state revolution or evolution. I deliberately use the definite article here because I will be talking about Belarus primarily, but definitely I will make some uh, points about Russia because it's getting more and more important. Uh, so uh, do we have remnants of the past or uh, is it like a tendency in the region? And what kind of risk for the future do we have? Uh, Definitely, Belarus has very distinct uh, Soviet heritage. Uh, it's the most ideologically brainwashed and economically advanced republic. These are two kind of very important pillars of the today's system. Uh, we had a very interesting fact that uh, Belarus has the highest uh, per capita rate of monuments to Lenin in Belarus. <laughs> that kind of tells you how uh, advanced Belarus was, and Lenin, by the way, historically has never been to Belarus, which is, makes its, its kind of prominence uh, definitely ideologically based. Uh, as uh, you know, that Eastern Germany was also the, the kind of showcase for the Western Germany and for Europe that capitalism, uh, socialism can work. Likewise, uh, Belarus was... Um, uh, showcase for the rest of the world that the Soviet Union can also have some good example. That's why it was industrialized, it was well developed and people in 1991 when perestroika happened, they didn't understand what it was to be like independent country. People didn't want changes and people for another three, three years, they longed uh, for Russia, they longed for Soviet uh, past, and that was very powerful. Uh, so uh, that's why we had severe deficit of national identity. Uh, Belarus, you know, was unfortunate in being between Nazi Germany and uh, uh, communism, so Germany, German, German uh, fascists destroyed many people and killed many people. Then uh, communists got over, and so that was like another wave of uh, 
communization of Belarus when many people were sent out to Siberia, Kazakhstan from Belarus, mostly Polish population that lived in the West. Uh, so there was nobody uh, and virtually nobody to protect national identity. And if there were some people which were smart and clever, they were sucked up by the Kremlin, by Moscow, and they worked there. Now, we had many prominent Russian, uh, no, Soviet-style uh, hardliners. They were originally born in Belarus. Uh, we had the artificial structure of production, something that was not driven by uh, consumer demand, but something that was driven by decision in Moscow, which was on purely ideological basis. Uh, we uh, did not have pockets of independent thought because all the, as you know, the KGB, uh, it's a very good example just to give you, to illustrate the, the, today's uh, state. Uh, people, when they retired from the army, they went to Ukraine. People who retired from, uh, let's say, government operators, they uh, went uh, to Crimea and to some other beautiful places. When KGB or special forces retired, the representative retired, they all came to Belarus. So we have a very good big concentration of the people uh, who had this kind of uncovered their KGB past, and they are there, they live, and they definitely have an impact on what's going on in the country. And uh, that's why the nostalgic element is there. People are nostalgic about the past, about the glorious Soviet past, and that's part of the, um, part, uh, part of the uh, system. Uh, Belarus now is full-fledged totalitarian state. Before the March 19th uh, presidential campaign, we don't call that elections because we didn't have elections in Belarus since 1996. Uh, that definitely, uh, we had some arguments whether it's a totalitarian country or totalitarian country. Now we really uh, see that this uh, totalitarian state, uh, these are the, this is the evidence. We don't have elections, we don't have balance of powers, we don't have independence of judiciary, uh, no human political rights and economic freedom. Uh, number at the top, uh, bottom 10 uh, in, in the index of economic liberty and one of the most repressed country in terms of uh, political rights and civil liberties based on Freedom House research. Uh, no private property protection. Uh, we had a very big and very unusual uh, network of shops called confiscat. It's like confiscated goods. And uh, one of uh, examples to show you how it works, uh, at one of regional districts, uh, when the director of the shop ran out of detergents, he just came up to the customs officer saying, you guys, we ran out of detergents. Why don't you confiscate something so we can have uh, them on our supply? Uh, so this is how it works. Uh, it's strange. It got to the point when Russian foreign ministry complained to Belarus about the scope of confiscated goods that were aiming going through the territory of Belarus. Uh, we have the information monopoly. Uh, we have political prisoners and elimination of political opponents. Uh, essentially, right now, one of the presidential contenders, Mr. Sandro Kazulin, is in prison. He was accused of hooliganism, of course, uh, and uh, he faces up to six years in prison. Uh, information, political, financial, and energy support of Russia. This is a very important fact. I will draw. I will talk about it later. Uh, what kind of contribution did we get from the West? Uh, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. That refers not only to Belarus, that refers to Russia, to Ukraine, that refers uh, and only to Central and Eastern Europe. 
So uh, everybody th saw democracy without understanding that as, uh, as magic, a three-in-one, magic wand, lamp of Aladdin, and goldfish. Any wishes? Welcome. So huge moral hazards uh, caused to very inflated expectations of the people about what democracy can bring. So people uh, saw these wonderful uh, uh, pictures from Germany primarily because that was too difficult for them and too expensive to go uh, to the United States. Like, you know, cars, uh, plenty of food, uh, what's, everything is chic, right? That's the thought that once they got democracy, uh, in a magic fashion, something that would appear. And they were very disillusioned, and that disillusionment came from misunderstanding of the concept of democracy uh, that uh, it never happened. France definitely was a role model for, of capitalism that is definitely tells you what, how, what kind of understanding of capitalism was. And we really shiver now, and especially in Cato, if you call France's a capitalist country. Uh, in terms of policy advising, uh, Sachs, Galbraith, Stiglitz, a paradigm known as Washington Consensus, was used as a blueprint for reforms. Uh, there was no uh, libertarian alternative for post-socialist countries. Uh, we just talked about uh, damage of tax, taxation, big government. Uh, well, we welcomed privatization, private property, but we needed some mechanisms, some tools uh, to campaign and to rely upon to be kind of piece of legislation that wasn't there because I do not know any I don't know any uh, libertarian at that time at the beginning of the 90s who could really uh, have a contribution to the public debate. Uh, third way was uh, the ultimate strategic direction of development. That was kind of, let's uh, combine the best qualities and features of the socialist economy and social system, which was described by many as moral, as uh, cultural, as aesthetic, contrary to uh, uh, the West, the capitalism that was associated with Schwarzenegger, Rambo, uh, third-rate Hollywood movies, as they do not have access to good uh, movies, good books, and that was kind of a uh, message that was sent. Uh, intellectual, financial, technical support from in major international organizations with obvious agenda. You know what uh, World Bank, IMF stand for, EBID, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, o o OECD, the, the organization that campaigns heavily against tax competition. So it's uh, definitely not the guys you expect uh, consistent liberalism from. And uh, what another interesting factor, again, moral relativism, and postmodernist culture. Everything became relative. And uh, instead of, you know, uh, campaigning for consistency in, uh, in uh, describing ideological foundations for capitalism, for free market economy, that was left alone uh, to be interpreted by the uh, organizations and uh, parties that used to be very sympathetic to the Soviet Union. That's why, that's one of the major issues why now, after 16, 17 years of reforms, there is no uh, consent for free market, no support for capitalism in post-socialist countries, and that's why we uh, have this growing animosity and hostility towards the West. Uh, in Belarus, the restoration of socialism began in 1994 when Lukashenko got elected. And uh, so he, uh, he based his uh, uh, approach ascendance into power by consolidating pro-totalitarian collectivist forces. He got uh, full control over money flows and assets. Uh, 
there were many ruthless, fanatically thirsty for power individuals who did not know and didn't care about division of power and uh, even democratic principles. There was domination of Marxism and collectivism ideologies, poor quality of government administration, and what is more important, possibility of international recognition uh, after taking power by at least one major influential country. And I mean, uh, that's obvious what, what country I, I have in mind. That's Russia, because uh, without Russia's support and political approval of what's going on in Belarus uh, for the next 10 years, uh, this kind of totalitarian state would have never survived politically, and I would tell later economically too. Uh, we had very poorly developed media market and structure of the civil society. That's why there was no resistance from this uh, important uh, institution to uh, the state as well. Uh, so we've witnessed restoration of distribution schemes. Inflation in uh, the beginning of the 90s we had about 2,000% inflation. Now we have oh, a little bit less than 10% inflation. But I would like to tell you that this doesn't matter. I don't trust in this number because we don't have free price in Belarus at all. Every price rise by a private company must get approval by uh, one of the state bodies, which its job it is. Uh, negative deposit interest rates. So you uh, go to the bank and you uh, put the money into the deposits and just remind you that Belarusians don't have the culture of uh, investment thinking. So they think that money is in the bank. Well, there is some interest rate, and so you, you get it. So, but they did not take into account inflation that was like uh, with, infla with the deposit interest rate were about 20 to 30 percent. Inflation was 300 percent. So that was the way households subsidized the state without knowing it. Uh, multiple exchange rate. That was another wonderful cash mechanism, cash earning mechanism for many people who were close to the authorities because we had like seven exchange rates. And if somebody has access to exchange rate of the National Bank, so he can do that, sell uh, at market rate, and he can become a millionaire uh, within one year. That was very uh, lucrative, and many people uh, got rich in Belarus like that. Uh, Belarus failed to uh, have any new big companies in, let's say, top uh, 100 producers of, of, of the country. Uh, they channeled the resources of uh, the biggest existing 100 companies to uh, ensure their kind of profitability and their employment there. Uh, and, uh, of course, these, uh, the internal market, domestic market, was severely protected. Uh, and moreover, which is very surprising even to Russian uh, colleagues, that we don't have even the single market inside the country. So let's say if I have a company in Minsk, capital of Belarus, I want to sell goods to Vitebsk or to Brest, uh, I cannot do that freely if I am beyond the quarter. And uh, the quarter, let's say, of uh, locally uh, sold uh, goods in the retail, let's say in Bobruisk, which is kind of a small provincial city of 150,000 people, is 90 percent. So that uh, tells you that Belarus essentially is like the country of seven feudums. Uh, fiefdoms where there is no free float of capital of, of uh, goods at all. Uh, surprise, well, not surprisingly, because uh, for me, uh, uh, everybody who supports our regime definitely sooner or later will follow suit. And we have a lot of evidence that Russia is doing that uh, because, well, Putin himself talked about managed democracy. 
uh, Putin uh, and uh, instead of like liberalizing and uh, turning uh, energy companies into a full competitive open corporations and monopolizes and turns uh, the different sectors into oligopolies uh, he's been again pursuing active industrial policy meaning all the, the like set of tools you are aware of they use energy as a political weapon which is very uh, you, you, we, we saw that in Ukraine now in Georgia in Moldova now we saw that in Belarus whether it will happen it's another case uh, centralization of decision making process is, uh, is speeding up full control of a mass media civil society and recently Gazprom announced that it is buying uh, the biggest uh, Russian daily Komsomolska Pravda uh, the owners of that uh, newspaper were kind of forced to sell, otherwise they won't be able to operate. So essentially there are no uh, TV channels left, no newspapers, major newspapers left, where you can have an alternative to uh, uh, Putin regime. Full control of uh, ideological support of Russian Orthodox Church that challenges Western civilization. That's a new development, but I think that is one of the most disturbing ones within in the next 16 years. The thing is that in the beginning of April, a Russian Orthodox Church, and that refers also to Belarus and Ukraine because these, the church operates in these two countries, passed the Declaration of Human Rights and Dignity. That's kind of the document that challenges uh, the Western uh, uh, attitude to human rights and liberties, and that says that uh, that begins the, uh, this, uh, this kind of period of time when Russia wants to be the third Rome again. It muscles its power, uh, it's rich in oil and, and uh, gas dollars, and it wants to have a different attitude, a uh, different uh, uh, role in the world. It plays tricks with uh, Belarus, it plays tricks with Iran, with, Palace, with Hamas, so it, it's getting very, very different right now. Uh, so the dangers of new totalitarian access, which uh, Belarus and Russia can be a part of, so uh, of course Russia, Russian authorities and most predominantly Russian politicians don't want to uh, see Belarus as an independent state. They think that it's a historical mistake they must correct. So uh, they support rogue states and increasing risks of international military conflicts. The thing is that what disturbed me uh, was that Russian Minister of Defense sold the brand new anti-missile system to Belarus uh, and incidentally, Belarusian uh, authorities sanctioned, opened up the assembly line of Iranian cars. Have you ever seen an Iranian car around? Uh, something that definitely justifies uh, f uh, floats and transportation between the two countries. And I suspect that that may have something to do with anti-missile defense system of Iran. Uh, so uh, this kind of behavior definitely discredits international organizations, OEC, uh, Organization for uh, uh, Security and Cooperation in Europe, Council of Europe, which is a body that unites 46 European countries, but Belarus, G8, UN. Uh, Russia uh, is chairing, as you know, G8 summit in St. Petersburg. Russia is taking chairmanship in the Council of Ministers of Council of Europe. So uh, what kind of message do we get uh, from these organizations that allegedly should be based on values, democracy, human rights, and fair and transparent international relations? That means that we're sanctioning that. 
We are sanctioning that. We are uh, giving free reign to the people who really are turning the uh, district, uh, that part of the world, into totalitarian access. Uh, definitely that weakens basic Western values and free market institutions as uh, we cannot uh, combat this kind of policy because we are more the West predominantly now is getting more morally relative. We don't know. Uh, the question I always ask in the beginning of the 90s so Marxism is the uh, ideology of, of socialism. Uh, so what is the ideology of uh, capitalism? No answer. Uh, Kant, uh, whoever, Heidegger, or Ayn Rand? Nobody knows. I, at least in uh, the institutions that are responsible for shaping uh, ideological policies. So uh, we are witnessing a restoration of the Berlin Wall in that part of the world. And uh, what is uh, more disturbing, we are facing acceleration of the uh, crisis in Europe. Uh, well, well, Belarusian television is pleased to show these pictures from France, where the authorities use tear gas against demonstration. There's like three million people in the street uh, against the liberalization of uh, labor market. We have the same kind of... Uh, uh, problems in Germany, in Holland, uh, and this is kind of welfare state that is uh, breaking apart uh, is considered to be a good model by very many ideologues in Russia and, and, and Belarus. Uh, so, and then, then it, there is intensification of the attack on the USA because if Iran got its nuclear weapons, and allegedly that's a matter of time, if there's a conflict between Israel and Iran, they say that's a question of time that may happen by the end of this year. So definitely the United States may not feel that secure and its foreign policy definitely needs to be adjusted to reality. Uh, so what are the potential for evolutionary reforms in Belarus? So in order to have uh, evolutionary processes, we need consolidation of Belarusian democratic forces, business community, and youth. That is, uh, we have a coalition of democratic forces. We have a coalition of youth organizations. We are missing uh, the element of business community. And that's what we've been working on. Um, uh, I know w what you added to the state is, but essentially American state has been helping us a lot. And I just mentioned one site project. It's a center for uh, international private enterprise that we've been working on to essentially develop a business coalition and to get it uh, and to let it be aware of what private property is and how it is interconnected with democratic values and sustainable development. Uh, intense, adequate information campaign, that's what we need in order to get the message out. It's getting more and more uh, difficult with the severe deficit of, uh, of uh, information. Uh, when I had a meeting at State Department, I think that uh, really we should think about uh, the uh, alternative, the uh, free satellite TV channel in the, Russian, in the Russian language to cover Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus because I think in the near future there won't be any uh, free and essentially objective coverage of these uh, enterprises. Instead of having like 25 different projects, uh, we definitely should think about uh, having uh, the efforts consolidated under this kind of attempt. Uh, 
uh, reduction of Russia's support may effectively kill the uh, uh, the Belarusian regime uh, economically. And uh, as you know, the, there are different estimates of uh, Russia's support to Belarus that vary from 11 to 13 percent of GDP. Just imagine what kind of blow uh, the centrally planned economy could get if it is deprived of this kind of subsidy and uh, the market, Russian market, access to Russian market. I know of any country in the world in the recent history that got this kind of support. That's why it's, when they say that, well, Belarus is sustainable, it's good, it's nice, it's uh, clean. Well, with this kind of money from a foreign state, which has definitely has its own agenda, it's kind of easier. Uh, consolidation of transatlantic access. Uh, no matter what you think about France or Germany, uh, I think that it's very important for us to get this uh, kind of uh, uh, policy together and have the common grounds based on Western values and to defend Western civilization. Uh, I would uh, th th think and look for a word which is alternative to the word crusade, because that's what we need. Moral crusade in defense of our values and culture. Otherwise, I mean, ours, libertarian, ours, uh, conservative, which are in the, from the perspective of, uh, of uh, my country very close to uh, one another. Uh, so we need the accumulation of investment and administrative mistakes uh, of the centrally planned economy to collapse, which is happening. And uh, there is definitely a risk of banking and budgetary crisis. Uh, Belarus faces, uh, says that it has balanced budget, but if you take into account all uh, expenditures, uh, it's the deficit is about 6% of GDP. Uh, what are the prerequisites for revolution? So the state should uh, weaken, uh, and uh, neutrality of force structures should be ensured. That's not the case yet. Uh, conflicts among ruling bodies and individuals, uh, that is going on, that is happening. Uh, the Lukashenko environment is not homogeneous. Deterioration of social standards uh, with, the, uh, uh, with kind of Russian support, it's, uh, it's, um, uh, it's difficult to assess from inside because Belarusians have very low expectations. And you know this is kind of a Russian saying about uh, social security standards in Belarus. Unless you don't have bombs falling on your head, you are happy with a piece of lard and a glass of vodka. If you have that, well, well, uh, you have pictures from Russia, from Chechnya, you have pictures from Iraq, you have uh, pictures from France, you have pictures from Poland with 33% unemployed young people. And in this kind of in, uh, information monopoly, you really feel fr uh, kind of inclined to believe that Belarus may be uh, a good country. Uh, so uh, outside pressure on the regime should accelerate and deterioration of economic and legal conditions of entrepreneurs and small businesses. Again, this is where the uh, authorities, what the authorities feel most likely the danger from. And so time is coming to make a choice. Either this is the window uh, you see from on your left or window you see on your right. And this is essentially, it's not like black and white. I wish it was. Uh, in economic theory it is. When you read Mises, right, so it's economic socialism is doomed, but it doesn't say when. So it doesn't say what kind of uh, domestic uh, conditions should be, what kind of international uh, well, assistance should be. But I'm sure that sooner or later the choice should be made. So we should really describe these things as this, black and white in many cases. So uh, we should be getting ready for change, and that's what we've been doing. We're producing intellectual ammunition. 
uh, like the books that Marianne uh, kindly present, uh, showed you. Uh, we uh, challenge government policies on very many issues. We designed our tax policy, tax reform, budgetary reform, health care. Uh, I'm proud to also to present to Belarusian authorities the pension reform based on Jose Pinera uh, ideas. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, creating authoritative intellectual alternative, uh, creating uh, uh, economists, supporting economists, uh, intellectuals from Belarus, integrating them into the Western society, Western community, uh, building grassroots support for change. That's what we've been doing with Psy Project, with uh, different other U.S. Uh, projects that are quite active in Belarus. So if you weigh uh, the support for Belarusian opposition for change between Europe and USA, well, it's, uh, it's like probably 1 to 10. Uh, challenging the regime's values and morality, winning not just minds but hearts and souls. So usually when I talk to different audiences, uh, I don't uh, well recall macroeconomic models. People, well, GDP per se is meaningless in Belarus because you know I can give you like 10 examples how you can uh, corrupt this index and uh, even when I talk to directors of state and private enterprises they say well when you see when what we get uh, when what would we give to uh, government authorities and what we have in reality these like two worlds like two windows that you saw that's why you don't rely don't believe uh, the statistics they lie um, uh, then, uh, so we use metaphors, we lose emotional connotations, and I drafted the program for social economic reforms for the single candidate for the opposition. I uh, talked about such things as health, as value, family, as uh, truth, as education, as job creation. So when we libertarians in America, I think that we should also uh, stick to the thing that people find very important, not just to talk about the things that uh, may be interested for very, very limited number of individuals. Uh, we are forging national uh, movement based on coalition of political parties, civil society, and business community, and we are getting uh, Belarus on the agenda of transatlantic coalition. Our uh, single candidate uh, met uh, prime ministers, presidents, and that gives its uh, not only security, because if he disappears somehow, people would know that it's not because uh, uh, he got a deal with some thieves, but definitely the reason is quite different. So what challenges do we have ahead? Uh, we have to mobilize human capital. We have to ensure technical and financial support for our activities. We have uh, to ensure access to media. And access to media, in our case, is uh, leaflets primarily, door-to-door -door campaign, talking to people, using every opportunity. That's what we have. And unfortunately, we don't have any uh, access to television at all. So we have to form networks, and networks vary, so it shouldn't necessarily be a network of political parties or NGOs. Those are networks of entrepreneurs, businesses, people who really care. Uh, after uh, March 19th presidential elections uh, events, we have uh, what I call prison brotherhood. Uh, this is uh, like 1,500 uh, young people who are in prison and who really uh, can really are determined to fight to the end, and they are really the backbone of the future uh, freedom movement.
Uh, we should have adequate marketing of ideas. That's where really can cater and uh, yeah, authoritative intellectual institutions can help. We should challenge new forms of statism and collectivism represented by UN, uh, EU sometimes, and many other uh, universities of uh, with renowned names like Berkeley, like uh, Sorbonne. So they still have this renown, this authority uh, among uh, post. Uh, in our countries. We should personalize freedom movement. And that's very important because every ideas, uh, set of ideas should have a face which is attracting, attractive, which is intelligent, which is sexy, which is fashionable. If you don't have the face, that's difficult to sell ideas. Finally, we should redefine West, which is uh, sometimes you may find um, uh, strange to do, but is France the West? That's the question I always ask when I analyze what's going on in France. So is it geographical? Is it moral? Is it uh, kind of, uh, is it on basis on uh, institutional, organizational, uh, phenomenal, well, uh, kind of foundation? What is it? So think this, this is what we really we should think about if we really want totalitarian states to become history. What kind of form of assistance? Again, this is standard things. We talk about political support, intellectual support, information supply, moral solidarity, and I'm really grateful to cater to SIPE, to uh, very many cases, U.S. government for this kind of support. Uh, we're talking about investment in viable structures and projects. We're talking about winning the battle of ideas and making a strong case for Western civilization. Uh, you know what changed my attitude to this life and to the... Uh, a world of Ideas was just one book. Uh, this is the book that I really strongly recommend to everybody in Russia and Belarus and Ukraine to read, which is Atlas Shrug. And unfortunately, many people in Europe don't know what it is. So that's why we don't necessarily should concentrate on macroeconomic models and econometrics, which is damaging. We should really uh, invest in spreading one million copies of Atlas Shrugged in that part of the world. And if that's, we do that... <laughs> If we uh, both force and money are impotent against ideas, this is Ludwig von Mises' uh, quote, and I would just urge everybody to join. Freedom Crusade is uh, that what will make totalitarianism history. We can do that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Yaroslav. I'm really pleased that you haven't lost any of that passion. I remember when we were walking down the Red Square in Moscow, and uh, we, went to, uh, we went to visit Lenin um, in, uh, in his mausoleum, and I'm happy to say that except for the two of us and a bunch of American tourists, uh, there were no people there. Um, <laughs> let's hope that's how it's going to stay. Well, the second speaker today I have a pleasure to introduce is uh, Dr. Anders Aslund, um, he is uh, a specialist in uh, post-communist economic transformation, especially in Russian and Ukrainian economies. Uh, he is currently at the Institute uh, for International Economics here in Washington, and uh, for a decade prior to that, he worked uh, at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was the senior associate and later director of the Russian and Eurasian program. He's also an adjunct professor at uh, Georgetown University and served as a government ex advisor to the Russian government, Ukrainian government, as well as the president of the Kyrgyz Republic. Uh, he's, uh, he's the author of six books, including Building Capitalism, uh, How Russia Became a Market Economy, Gorbachev's Struggle for Economic Reform, 
um, and so on. He uh, is published very widely. Uh, his articles have appeared in uh, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Interest, New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times, and Wall Street Journal. He has obtained his uh, Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Stockholm um, and also a doctorate uh, from Oxford University, St. Anthony's College, 1982, and it is my pleasure to welcome him to Cato. Thank you very much, uh, Marianne, and it's a pleasure to be here at the uh, Cato Institute again, and in particular to comment upon uh, Jaroslav Romanchuk's uh, very extensive and uh, uh, good presentation of uh, what he and others are doing in Belarus uh, uh, today. I visited Belarus uh, the first time uh, just after the Chernobyl catastrophe uh, 20 years uh, ago. And the first impressions I had then, I lived in Moscow at the time, were quite surprising. Uh, Belarus stood out as the place where the Soviet economy worked better than anywhere else. It was much cleaner than anywhere else. And uh, what surprised me most was that uh, wherever I went, uh, service uh, people refused to take tips just because it was forbidden, something that nobody anywhere else in the Soviet Union would care about. And uh, uh, I really got the impression, very much on lines with what uh, Yaroslav uh, described, this is the Prussia of the Soviet Union, more militarized, more orderly, more disciplined. And of course, uh, that's no good for building democracy as we have seen uh, in the real uh, Prussia. Jaroslav uh, uh, covered a great many of aspects, and my intention is really to focus on uh, two economic uh, uh, issues. Uh, one is the rather amazing <coughs> economic results that Jaroslav did not go deeply into, and another that he didn't uh, discuss more in detail, and that is uh, Russia's uh, uh, role. So if we look upon the Belarusian economy, of course, Yaroslav is perfectly right. And I would, uh, this is a surviving Soviet-style economy. And I think that there is one fact that is important. It says it's all. 80% state ownership. It's only uh, Turkmenistan that can compete with Belarus in this uh, regard, not even Uzbekistan. And this means that there are no strong independent businessmen. I think that's the fundamental uh, political weakness of uh, Belarus. And this is a huge difference from Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, and also Russia. Admittedly, we are now seeing a big renationalization in Russia, but uh, so far, this makes the situation for uh, a democracy look much worse in um, Belarus uh, than uh, elsewhere. And my point uh, here is just simple. For democratization, uh, any privatization is better than no privatization. But let me turn to my first topic here. It's the amazing economic results. Belarus has officially had a GDP growth of 11.9% in the last uh, two years. What is the source of this growth? It's export-led. 
exports have grown by double digits in the last uh, five of the last six years, and it surged by 36% in 2004. The current account has been a problem, but last year was finally in slight surplus. The external debt is uh, small, only 18% of GDP. Admittedly, foreign direct investment is uh, minimal in the, uh, the country. Uh, the financial stabilization has been the main problem, and inflation reached 10%, uh, that is down to 10% only last year. But the black exchange rate really disappeared in 2001. So how can this Belarusian economic uh, dynamism uh, be ex uh, explained? I would put it in three essential explanations. The first is that this is a regional economic boom we are seeing, and it's lifting uh, all shifts. And Belarus is actually below the CIS average. So this is no wonder. It's just slightly worse uh, than average. Uh, as Jaroslav mentioned, we shouldn't take these statistics too seriously. They are exaggerated. But uh, the World Bank and uh, the European Commission d do take them seriously, and then they have done certain studies of it. So say that the, uh, uh, the exaggeration can hardly be more than two uh, to three percentage units on the uh, growth rate. And the main answer here is really increasing Russian subsidization of uh, the Belarus uh, economy. And this comes in uh, two forms. The first is export of uh, crude oil and natural gas at uh, prices below the market price. And the other form is the purchase of Belarusian manufacturers that uh, would otherwise have uh, little value. Seems to have disappeared, the last line. <clears throat> and uh, that's tractors and uh, other uh, machinery that could not be sold on the world market. So in order to figure this out, I, uh, of course, looked up the Russian uh, foreign trade statistics. And in the statistical yearbook for last year, I saw quite a surprise. Uh, the Russian foreign trade statistics after the end of the Soviet Union has normally divided the world into two spheres, near broad, that uh, is the CIS, and uh, the rest of the world. Now, on the contrary, in the latest issue uh, that uh, is just out, you read the world in three parts, near broad, the rest of the world, and then comes Belarus, as a special category. I don't know what political message the statistical yearbook wants to uh, uh, make with this, but it makes it very clear what the statistics are. So therefore, the statistics are surprisingly good. Oh, here it came. <clears throat> so first, let us look upon uh, the natural gas Im imports. The volume... Uh, is uh, 19 uh, billion cubic meters. And the pr uh, in 2005, it's rising every year. The price for B uh, Belarus was $47 per 1,000 cubic meters, uh, while the net back price from Europe was 150 
dollars per uh, 1,000 cubic meters. It means here we have a subsidy of uh, pretty exactly $2 billion, only on gas. And crude oil uh, imports, here there is uh, uh, less of a, a subsidy, only $1.3 billion. Uh, so if we put this together, the Russian oil and gas subsidy last year was $3.3 billion for oil and gas. Uh, and uh, that amounts to 11% of Belarus' GDP in 2005. And these are just the official numbers. There's nothing uh, hidden in this. And a peculiarity with this is that this is rising with world oil and gas prices because import prices uh, are stable, but the world prices have been going up. So this can explain a substantial part of the increase in the uh, last uh, uh, two years. So it's really Russia's subsidies that Belarus seems to have to thank for the increased growth in the two last years. And as you have probably heard in the news now recently, uh, uh, three weeks ago, uh, one of Gazprom's uh, 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 vice chairman announced that uh, Belarus will now have to pay uh, market prices as everybody else from the beginning of uh, next year. And this would mean to Belarus a cost of a, a current subsidy of $2 billion a year. And this would amount to almost 7% of GDP. I think that this is the most important thing that uh, seems to be currently uh, going on. And this would eliminate Belarus's economic growth. And naturally, this would lead to political destabilization of Lukashenko at the same time. So the question today is really, is Russia or Gazprom really choosing between profits or empire? You may note that Gazprom today is worth $230 billion, almost one-third of uh, Russia's uh, uh, GDP in comparative uh, uh, value. And at the same time, we are seeing something uh, that is uh, quite serious in Belarus's internal uh, development. And that is that this extraordinary honesty in Belarus seems to be going away. Uh, hardly any country has seen such a deterioration in uh, uh, the Transparent International Corruption Perception Index, as uh, Belarus uh, has uh, done in the last uh, four years. It has moved from being as honest as, uh, as Estonia or Hungary to being as dishonest as uh, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, which uh, are uh, a quite corrupt uh, country. So what we are seeing here is really that corruption is getting out of control. And if you are getting losing control over corruption, you are also losing control over uh, state control. So what conclusions do I 
uh, come to? Well, I think that the first the conclusion is that Belarus is actually getting quite interesting after having been uh, shockingly stable for a long time. Uh, the biggest question I have is not really in Minsk, but in Moscow. Is Russia getting tired of su subsidization? Is the current Russian uh, leadership more interested in profits than in uh, empire? And uh, civic resistance uh, shows that fear is abating in uh, Belarus today, as Yaroslav uh, uh, so vividly illustrates uh, uh, before us here. And then finally, corruption is undermining state control. So to my mind, this does not look as stable as it used to do. Thank you. Thank you for that fascinating presentation. Um, let me misuse my, uh, um, my position here as a moderator to ask um, the first question, and then we'll, of course, open it up to question and answer session. I want to ask of both of you, um, let's assume that the GDP growth is really overestimated by, by only 3 or 4%. Um, is there a sign on the, on, on the streets of Belarus that uh, the economy is actually ticking along quite nicely or not? I ask that because during the years of the Soviet Union, we kept on constantly um, overestimating economic growth in, in the USSR. The CIA claimed that uh, standard of living in the USSR was the same as that in Spain, that East Germany was as wealthy as Great Britain and so on because most of these GDP figures were simply complete, um, complete fabrications. So is there a reason to treat those, those figures with um, um, uh, like it's true or not? Thanks. Um, good point. Uh, first, about the theory. You know that economy, unlike mathematics or physics, you cannot make experiments, reverse it back, and then compare results. You cannot uh, say what would have happened in Belarus had it applied a different model. But we can say that, let's say, Baltic states that uh, definitely took a different turn both in uh, political and economic policies and its uh, growth rate is higher. Uh, investment uh, attracted to these countries uh, definitely is much higher. Uh, salaries in uh, these countries are higher. Wages, um, uh, pensioners are higher. So you see even uh, human development index is better. Competitiveness is higher. So if Belarus had taken different policy, uh, had acquired democracy and moved closer to Europe, uh, then definitely it would have been better off. Uh, we are kind of surprised that streets are clean, but, you know, Minsk uh, was the cleanest cities in the Soviet Union without Lukashenko. So how could we uh, have it as an, as a, an, as an asset to, that refer that to the current economic policies? You know, it's like, you know, we have some uh, a joke uh, among ourselves that if the government takes responsibility for something, it is sure to fail. It tries to uh, it formed the union state between Russia and Belarus. Now we had a huge drop in trade between Russia and Belarus. So it began uh, the, pro uh, the program of import substitution. We have surge of import. Uh, so no matter what you take, right, uh, you have housing uh, program. Now we have the prices for your houses and utilities that are 
like $1,500 uh, $1, per uh, one uh, square meter of uh, housing, uh, which is very, very expensive for Minsk and Belarus, when, where the average pension is uh, uh, $100 and average salary is one of about $250. As for GDP, uh, uh, no, I commented on that. And uh, as for clean streets, there is another uh, very pure market incentive explanation. In uh, cleaners, street cleaners uh, are very well paid. Their salaries uh, range from 300 to 400 dollars, but they can get some more by uh, uh, stealing from the state. And besides, they have very good access to cheap credit. So it's uh, from the perspective of uh, some financial benefits, it's, uh, it's get better to be a clean street, uh, uh, street cleaner in Minsk than a doctor. And that definitely market phenomenon. Yeah, and sure, Marianne, there's a lot to, in what you're you are saying, and we shouldn't take these numbers uh, uh, all too seriously. Uh, Belarus essentially has all the old Soviet-type economic distortions with uh, an important caveat, and that is that you have a private sector of uh, officially 20% of the economy, and these are uh, services that are close to the uh, to the consumers, so this looks to a considerable extent like uh, Poland in the 1980s before the uh, transformation. Uh, I do think that uh, there is a serious structural problem that uh, uh, Belarus has excellent, uh, excellent Soviet machine building. The good thing is that it's excellent, the bad thing is that it's Soviet. So I looked up on the uh, for the biggest export items of Belarus to, to Russia, which says a lot. Trucks, tractors, refrigerators. So uh, the Belarusian enterprises are now exporting a lot, but essentially only to Russia, because uh, their quality is still good enough for the still not too demanding Russian market. But that is quickly becoming more demanding, and then uh, Belarus's uh, machine building will see serious structural problems. And this is true for much of uh, Belarusian uh, ma manufacturing. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll open it up to question and answers. Uh, I will ask you to please wait for the microphone to come to you and then to introduce yourselves and uh, please make your questions short and in a form of a question. Gentlemen in the back. Thank you. I'm John Baer, too, with the National Taxpayers Union. Professor Aslan, you uh, gave a nice presentation on the amount of subsidy uh, going from the Russians to, um, uh, to Belarus. And I'm curious, you didn't say much about what the Russians believe they're getting. I, I, as a person who doesn't know much about Belarus, I guess my assumption is it's support in international relations, support for the CIS. It, but it, given the numbers that you cited, that seems like an extraordinary amount of money for a country like Russia that has economic problems to pay for a very little return. And so I'm wondering if you can say more what Russia gets for that. And if it is indeed only that, perhaps that does seem to support your idea that, that you know, the Russians may get tired of this subsidy. Well, uh, part of this comes from... Uh, 
this Russian, uh, Belarusian Union that uh, has, uh, was concluded at the end of 1993 uh, and has never been consummated. And uh, you can say that it means extremely little, but uh, it does mean, uh, for example, that uh, uh, they are supposed to have uh, a customs union, and uh, a part of it has been that Russia has, uh, as a sort of complement to uh, Belarus, because it wanted to be politically uh, so close to it, in particular given lower uh, gas prices. But now Gazprom that, uh, seems to be most interested, frankly, in its uh, market capitalization, does not want to pay these uh, uh, subsidies any longer. So the answer is there were political reasons, somewhat murky and very much pushed through by the more backward parts of uh, uh, the Kremlin. And uh, today, even the backward parts of the Kremlin are very commercially oriented and want uh, uh, to make a profit. So at least what we are saying now officially and publicly is that we are no longer prepared uh, to pay these uh, subsidies. Let me add one comment to that. If you desegregate Russia, you see the uh, essence of this kind of subsidization because uh, this is the way, these are the schemes to steal from both Belarusian and Russian budget by typical Soviet style or sometimes Western style money uh, price uh, transfer schemes. Uh, if you sell uh, oil, crude oil, to Belarus at prices that sometimes are 10 times lower than uh, world prices, then you process the oil, you pay less taxes to the Russian budget, you pay less taxes to the Russian budget, and these prices, this kind of profit is transferred somewhere to offshore company, and is shared like in the uh, rate 70 to Russian oligarchs and 30 to Belarusian partners. Uh, I think that's pro that you cannot prove that documentarily, but I think this is the case. And uh, so this is the essence of this kind of subsidization mechanism. And that's why when Graf, Russian Minister of, Econ of Economy, or Russian uh, Prime Minister, are talking about market relations with Belarus, that means that they are getting tired of, uh, of uh, Russian oligarchs stealing from the Russian budget. As simple as that. So it's not altruism per se, that's just typical transfer mechanism. Right in front. at Nigel Atwood, Institute of Humane Studies. Could Yaroslav, could you comment on the situation in the universities among professors and students? You mean, do they drink beer together? <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, there is monopoly of education and, and, uh, universe, and uh, re economic and scientific research. You can hardly think about uh, uh, anything that... Uh, uh, that presumes pluralism, but at the same time there is a lot of th sympathy to independent researchers. I'm on very good terms with a lot of economics uh, professors and teachers at universities. I uh, do a lot of uh, research and, uh, and uh, seminars with them. I provide them uh, literature, books. Uh, so we are very good terms and they are very eager to take part in independent projects provided they, uh, I cannot mention their names. 
like in the book uh, that I showed that to you. Uh, well, there are many people from National Bank, Minister of Finance, who took part in this in the work uh, in our joint project. But they say, well, please don't mention our names because that will just uh, put them in a very difficult uh, situation in the job market. That's why you know it's uh, really uh, in Belarusian universities. I think in Belarus is the only country that pays attention to ideology because all universities, private universities included, must have ideological ideology course. But Lukashenko is not somebody who really like can, uh, well, somebody who really understands communism even. He's like, you know, he, he thinks that Stalinism is okay, that Stalin contributed a lot to the country, uh, to the development of that part of the world. But uh, teachers who are forced to teach ideology, they say, well, you, you want us to teach that? We'll teach whatever we want. So that's like like hidden sabotage is there. That was the case in the Soviet Union in the 80s. I think that is the case for Belarus too. And, stu and students definitely, no matter what, there's a huge intimidation campaign for students. Like every uh, two days before the elections, KGB boss came out on national television and said, everybody who took part, who would take part in the demonstration uh, the day after elections would be considered a terrorist and who will face to eight years in prison. 30,000 people showed up, and many students too, including students of uh, state universities, and that gives you an idea how uh, really students uh, treat the regime. Hello, my name is Andrew Evans. This is a question for both speakers. I'd just like to ask about the role of diplomacy in the near future. Um, I think uh, during Lukashenko's last election, uh, Belarus was very interesting and then quickly became non-interesting to the rest of the world. Uh, what do you see for the future based on uh, EU sanctions, etc.? There are no EU sanctions. When we talk about visa ban for 32 people, I do not think this is a sanction. This is like the estimate of uh, the uh, contribution of a few individuals into the fraud scheme that happened in Belarus. Uh, the uh, Council of, of Europe made a very clear report uh, making accusations or allegations of involvement of some government officials into uh, crimes and the disappearance of leading Belarusian politicians. And the authorities just failed to have a thorough, uh, transparent investigation. That means that this is, these are the crimes that the authorities would uh, sooner or later will be responsible for. Uh, it's overblown because the Belarusian authorities definitely would like to see uh, the West or European Union, the USA, as isolating Belarus. I do not say isolation. We can uh, still we can go out uh, and and into Belarus. Uh, students are not prevented from going out unless they uh, have a permission from the Minister of, Econ of Education. Even teachers, in order to take part in a conference, must have this kind of permission. Uh, there are no special uh, uh, resolutions on economic sanctions. I'm against economic sanctions because they uh, will never work because we have open borders with, Belarus, with Russia and Ukraine, and that will just damage the democratic forces. So uh, I would like to have more consistency in uh, information support, in political support, in technical support, because we have people who really been working active in Belarus for a long time. 
NDI, IRI, SIPE. Uh, you have uh, IREX that deals with media projects. We have some European institutions. And if you really w ask them what should be done, with uh, request also advising uh, people in Belarus, then we really can uh, uh, get more value to $1 added to the democratization in Belarus. Yeah, uh, I would like to add uh, something that I think is very important there. Uh, to go after the money of uh, the top officials. Uh, and uh, here it is uh, two specific banks that seem to hold uh, the Lukashenko uh, family's money. Uh, it has been a strife within the European Union whether these accounts should be frozen or not. I'm not quite sure what has the outcome has been. It, uh, they should be, be frozen. I think that's uh, essential and that's uh, really effective uh, sanction that uh, should be undertaken. On trade uh, sanctions, I totally agree with uh, uh, Jaroslav. We see whenever there is a trade sanction, it means that the crooks like Milosevic and Saddam Hussein get a monopoly over foreign trade that they can easily control. And it means that uh, the, uh, the top of the regime not only gets more corrupted, but particularly it gets uh, richer. And that's not an interest. We should really learn from these two countries not to impose sanctions. On the contrary, we should work for trade integration of Belarus. And I think that this is uh, the most uh, serious exposure. On top of this, uh, visas. It's vital to liberalize uh, uh, visas for ordinary people, in particular in the European Union. And here we have had the absurd uh, situation that the Polish government, that has persistently been interested in having a liberal uh, visa regime or no visa regime for Belarus, has been forced by the Schengen Agreement within uh, the European Union to impose visas on uh, uh, Belarusians and also impose uh, forced to impose higher fees than are uh, uh, feasible uh, for Belarusians. Uh, so one should let the people come out, uh, pursue exactly the same strategy as the West pursued uh, with regard to solidarity in uh, Poland in the, the 1980s and not uh, try to uh, uh, undertake san sanctions against the people over the economy, only against uh, the bank accounts of the leaders. Essentially, this whole talk about bank account is overblown because, you know, having so many ways to hide money in the West, that the West elaborated, it's really would be very stupid to have an account on anybody's name. I'm sure that there are way, way, many, many ways, and Lukashenko is not that dumb to, to have an account on his name. That's why he openly said, if you find an account on my name, please confiscate the money. Uh, so let's just forget about it and be serious. As for the visa thing, uh, allow the Schengen uh, um, uh, procedures, if that happens, then Belarus, uh, Belarusian would have to pay $65, $60 per visa to go to Lithuania and Poland, and that would be the most effective isolationist policy that we really stand up against. We met Barroso, we met Merkel, Mr. Solana, all... Who, I don't know who else we should meet in order to pass this message, but European bureaucracy just takes another three years to understand it. Well, so come democracy to your country, will you be the first in line to join the EU? <laughs> um, 
I wrote a non paper on EU uh, uh, Belarusian relations. For Belarus, uh, it's not integrating into European democracy. For us, it's about value choice, and the EU is considered by many Belarusians as uh, something that it has democracy, it has rule of, rule of law, has kind of uh, political and economic competition. So they don't understand what it is, but still, without very huge, very severe campaign against EU, 37 40% of Belarusians would like to join EU. So our, my idea is first to work, have like free trade arrange, arrangement with that, and within 20 years, I think that EU will transform it, that, itself into that. Very good. Dr. Palmer. Thank you. Tom Palmer, the Cato Institute. I have a question about strategic thinking in opposition. Uh, one of the things that's important is to peel away layers of the onion, that is to say, elements that are currently supporting a regime, and neutralize them. Either say life will be better for you, or at least it won't be worse. Is there willingness in the opposition to make a kind of a deal, like the Hungarian liberals made at the end of the communist regime, which is, just go, we won't confiscate your houses, there were no show trials in Hungary. They didn't take their fabulous houses in Lake Balaton. They kept all of their pensions. They just said, let us just be free. Is that a commitment that the opposition would openly make? And are those the sort of negotiations that you would anticipate being in place? Um, very good question. Uh, it takes two to tango. Uh, Opposition leaders on numerous occasions said that uh, they would let Lukashenko go. Uh, he would find he would have a state pension. He would be left alone, provided he does not commit criminal crimes. That's just one condition. I think that that is fair in in any case. That's the case that was uh, made by Yushchenko in terms of Kuchma involvement in different activities. And uh, during the least a recent campaign, also both candidates said that that's not about that's not about personality. That's not the fight against Lukashenko. That's the fight for the future of Belarus. That's why uh, the book is not about like criticizing Lukashenko regime. That the book is about future of Belarus. Uh, on numerous occasions, I uh, made uh, even draft laws, sent them to the parliament and to representative administrations, offering intellectual assistance, offering the dialogue. But I think that it will take another probably six months for Lukashenko to understand that there should be this kind of a dialogue because uh, he, ha he faces very difficult situation when no matter what moves he makes, he is uh, a loser. First, he's not likely to sell to Russia because that would mean that he will be like number 91 uh, person in the hierarchy of Belarus, uh, Russian political power and with, he'll be condemned by Belarusians. Uh, European Union, uh, I don't think that he will hold uh, free and fair presidential elections and would voluntarily resign. And there is third sector which is really getting more critical, which is small and medium-sized businesses. This 20% that are regulated, 20% that generate a lot of profit and work much better. And so uh, I saw signs. When we um, proposed national business platform that we uh, worked out with our American colleagues, I was so surprised to get very positive feedback from Belarusian television. 
So I wasn't invited because I'm kind of persona non grata on Belarusian television. But our partner, uh, who is uh, is with business associations, uh, had an access to television, and uh, he was praised by many commentators that finally business community uh, is uh, constructive in its dialogue with authorities. So we are ready to for the authorities to come up with a kind of proposal. But I think it's uh, it will take. Uh, some more psychological and political pressure from Russia to do that. Okay, one last question. Gentleman in the back. Yes, sir. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, um, I'm Dane von Brackenrockart with the United States Bill of Rights Foundation. I was wondering how much uh, of an impact or lack of impact what's going on with the Internet insofar as infiltrating... Uh, uh, you know the, the the communist regime is. You know, are they censoring things, or are are computers prolific? Are they out there? I mean, it was it, kind of give us an overview of how the internet is playing into all of this. Internet is being uh, becoming very very important, more and more important. Twenty five percent of households use that. It's definitely much less than in any Western country. Uh, about fifty percent of young people to uh, twenty five years old use the computer as uh, internet as source of information. And uh, recent political campaign we used uh, it more and more to promote our uh, programs to inform people what's going on about the actions, and it's really uh, picking up which is very good. At the same time, uh, Belarus bought brand new uh, high-tech uh, equipment to censor that. To, uh, that's something that they got a deal with China. And uh, I think that uh, well, we, we, Wi-Fi internet, wireless internet is banned. It's not allowed. Satellite internet is not allowed. That's why Belarusian uh, telecommunication monopoly, uh, Bill Telecom, uh, has this cable that is the only source of incoming and outcoming information. That's why when we have uh, different election campaigns and it's crucial for the people to get information, major opposition websites are shut down. And when you click, like, say, uh, Chatter 97 or UCP or whatever, you've got porno sites instead. That was the case within the next, uh, in the last two campaigns, but we definitely are determined to use more and more Internet because it's definitely growing and there are ways to overcome these difficulties. Well, so, uh, okay, one more, but very quickly. Uh, over, right, right in front. This is a sort of a follow-up question. Internet is great, but isn't it somewhat preaching to the convinced? We're preaching, we're informing the part of the population that best informed. Tell me, outside of what's available now, what sort of information medium would be most effective for the next couple of years? You mean a couple of years like five? I think that it's still Internet, because in five years, I think that everybody would have Internet. Uh, even China is not showing a good example. But um, the most effective media right now, and it uh, was, are leaflets and brochures that we ex distribute through door-to-door -door campaign. This is the best way to have a contact with the people, to tell them we're not devils that are spies from the West that were hired to destroy free and sovereign Belarus. Uh, we are just 
ordinary people who would like to live in a better country. And uh, from my experience, I tried to run for the parliament twice, and that's what I did. I, I, I myself went from door to door. My colleagues, like 100, 150 people, went with my program and with my information. Outside, and w- outside information. Outside. Ah, outside world. From outside. Ah, from outside. Okay, but uh, in this case, um, it's, it's still the same. Uh, we have uh, television, we have radio that are quite limited, we have Radio Liberty uh, that is uh, had the audience of about 3% of the population, but this is one of the best projects that we had in this electronic media. That's why every time we talk about uh, serious uh, uh, Western involvement into Belarus, we say, Listen, uh, people in Washington, in the Washington D.C., people in Brussels or Berlin, why just to sit together and have one big major TV station for the whole country instead of having like a program uh, approved by EU, two million dollar, two million euro pro- program, which is like uh, thirty minute broadcasting uh, on um, on uh, the cable Russian television with uh, probably access to point. Uh, 1% of the population. So this is inadequacy. There, is, there are some resources there, but resources are not used in the best way. So, uh, but that's not the information that Belarusians need from the outside world. They need the information from Belarus because that's what they interest them. What kind of conditions are, and definitely when they talk to the people, uh, they get well, everything they want. Uh, information campaign is definitely the biggest challenge, and we are determined to, uh, to, to, to essentially to work on that, and I think there is growing understanding between State Department, between uh, donor community, private donors in the United States and Europe, and people who uh, are active inside the country. Dr. Aston, yeah, one last comment. Let me add here a little bit. I've uh, recently edited a book on uh, uh, revolution in Orange, uh, together with uh, Ma- Michael McFall, uh, and we had uh, Aljona Pritulla, the editor-in-chief of Ukrainska Pravda, the leading internet uh, newspaper in Ukraine, uh, writing about the role uh, media played in the Orange Revolution. And I think this is very much the picture that we should expect for the future in Belarus also, and it's, uh, uh, it's very much in line with what uh, Jaroslav uh, said. The internet is vital. Ukrainska Pravda had uh, has a steady readership of 70,000 people, and it has uh, a budget of $42,000 a year. You don't get cheaper and you don't get more accurate uh, than that. And what they had in particular was a relaying of regional news from various parts of the country. What really matters is that you can get information very swiftly about what is happening in the country when start, uh, things start happening. And the second thing was that uh, Ukraine had uh, an independent television channel. You wouldn't hope for that in um, Belarus, but the question is what you can do eventually with satellite television or with uh, certain neighboring uh, countries. Uh, third uh, uh, source that was important in Ukraine was Zirka Nedelia, a very heavy, serious, uh, independent weekly uh, newspaper. And the fourth that we shouldn't forget uh, during the demonstrations itself was mobile phones that can be used for all kinds of messaging. 
and uh, uh, Belarus is perfectly modern when it comes to uh, mobile phones, so that will probably pay, uh, play a greater role in Belarus than it did in uh, Ukraine even, while two sources did not play any significant role. That was uh, daily newspapers, which are awful in Ukraine, and uh, the radio, both domestic and uh, foreign, they simply did not uh, uh, keep up with uh, the news flow in the same way as uh, the Internet did. Well, thank you very much uh, to both of you. You've been excellent, and good luck with promoting freedom in, in Belarus.